0: Hi, I'm Steve Barlow. This is the Humanized Workforce Future You podcast series, where we ask people from all walks of life to talk about their perception of the future and their role in a rapidly changing work and life environment.
1: Hi, I'm Craig Saffin. Day by day, we are all learning to live with the impact technology, AI, and changing health and social conditions have on our lives. Mostly, it is presented as scary and a loss of opportunities. The Humanized Workforce Future You podcast series thinks the future is bright and something to look forward to. Let's see what today's guest thinks.
0: Today on this episode, we have our guest, Victor Purton. Victor Purton is a wonderful man. He's the Chief Optimism Officer for the Centre for Optimism. And he's got an incredible background. He was, uh, he started off as a barrister, then he became a politician, did that for 18 years. And then he became a trade commissioner for Australia in the Americas. And Victor's got a lot to teach us about being a human being and following our story and our journey. So let's listen to what Victor has to say. So we've got with us today uh, Craig Sapman. How are you, Craig? Hi, Steve. Hi Victor. Nice to see you. Oh, I'm Vic- delighted to be here, Craig and Steve.
2: It's um, going to be a super conversation. Okay. We're all the people can't see us, but we're all smiling, which is, of course, the first secret of optimism. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <That's right. laughs> well, Victor, can you tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, uh, and where you come from? Sure. So I am the
2: Chief Optimism Officer of the Centre for Optimism. It's a great title and everyone can plagiarise that. We'd love to see more Chief Optimism Officers around the country and around the world. Um, My pathway to to getting here, I'm I'm the kid of refugees who came to Australia in the early 50s, my mother having survived both Soviet communism and Nazism in Germany and then the invasions. Um, And pathway to optimism is really interesting because I actually take it back three generations. Um, My um, grandfather was executed in 1940 and my grandmother to the gulag. Um, a dozen years in the Gulag, she survived. And in ill health in her late 80s, she was part of the million hands across the Baltics. Um, she went to the rallies of Sayudis and she said to me, I'm going to outlive communism. And of course, four years later, she did. So she was an inspiration. And then my mother was widowed um, when I was very young. So a refugee mother in a strange land. but. You know, she worked three jobs, we had huge support from the Australian community and she died last year at the age of 92 and was still teaching until four months before her death and and a real leader in yoga and meditation and optimism. And then, career wise, I was a barrister, Um, then I was a Member of Parliament for 18 years and that sort of rushed by but was very joyous. Um, I was then Trade Commissioner in the Americas and North and South America. And everywhere I went, there was this stereotype of Australians as relentless optimists. Um, The chairman of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. And my work was made easy because whenever we knocked on the door, people wanted to hear the Aussie accent. And of course, your accent gets broader um, when you know that people want to hear it. And then I came back to Australia and I was stunned by the negativity of language around leadership and not just political leadership. I mean, every country, including dictatorships, people make jokes about the political leadership. But for me, I knew I'd changed from living in Silicon Valley, but the language here had changed, become very negative. And, you know, Craig participated in our Australian Leadership Project. We interviewed 2,500 people. And at the end we conclude that the leadership's pretty good so why the negativity and in 2017 i had my eureka moment which was at the global integrity summit i was on the last panel and after three days of misery i changed my speech to the case of for optimism and it lit up the room 700 people and helen clark said turn that into a book vic and i will endorse it and then that led to a global speaking career and then August of 2019, a very funny conversation with the Victorian government minister, who said, that, "What the? Can the government do that Victor Pertin himself can't do globally?" And that night was born the Centre for Optimism.
1: Fantastic! That is amazing. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of inspiration from your um, your mothers and your your uh, your parents and grandparents, and uh, a lot of uh, turning uh, opportunities into real things. What do, you, what do you really get, like the, I can see the optimism and I can feel the energy, but what, what is it that gives you the passion about the centre of optimism and working in an optimistic uh, framework? Uh,
2: so firstly, um, the question we ask is what makes you optimistic? So we're not like Steven Pinker or Bill Gates or the Roslings who say you should be optimistic because of global progress. We understand that there is misery, there is grief, there is failure in everyone's life. So for us, optimism comes much more from heart, from family, from spirituality and faith. So for me, every day I'm asking several people what makes you optimistic. And on this day, you know, when we're recording this, you know, we're doing a session for um, Jewish care. You know the 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 agency that looks after people's welfare and you know they need it because of the lockdowns and the prohibition on going to synagogue and gathering in families and then we're going to be doing an event for over 125 people from the utility sector again what makes them optimistic how are they leading their teams with optimism how has COVID set them up for a better future so for me every time i ask that question what makes you optimistic and you know, we've asked presidents, prime ministers. Okay. I've asked women digging ditches <laughs> in India. And yeah. Every time I ask that question, the person's face lights up. Yeah. And in the 12,000 answers I have recorded, only eight duplicate each other.
1: Really? That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So that's where you get your energy from? Is there that anticipation of what the next response is going to be, maybe?
2: Oh, not even the anticipation. It's actually enjoying the response, and you know, you ask again where the passion comes from. You know, my mum obviously living to ninety-two and supporting me through all of these career changes. Not long before she died, you know, a week before she died, she said, "Look, Vic, you have never done anything more important." <laughs> so at her funeral, I actually said, "Look, if Mum said that and she worked to ninety-two, I have a thirty-year strategy to emulate her ability to inspire people through to death."
1: So so one of the things that the reasons we're doing Humanised Workforce Future You podcast is because there's so much negativity about the future of work and a lot of uh, things about computers and AI taking your job and how irrelevant people have become. But what we're trying to focus on is we think there's great opportunities out of the developments. What, what What are you finding from talking to all people about optimism, about how people see the future of work and where skills and training are going?
2: Yeah, and um, last year we were sponsors of the uh, Bendigo um, Invention and Innovation Festival. And when we added the word optimism to that festival, as the organiser said, we increased registrations 2,000%. You know, we had people joining us from from New York through to Africa. Mm. Um, And so, you know, for me, I look at what's happening and the incredible opportunities. So, as you know, Craig, a few weeks ago, I door knocked the town of Caniva. Mm. You know, which is a small, remote town in, in the western Wimmera. And, and they've got lots of things going against them. You know, the bank is closing. Um, they've got border closures, which restrict them from most of their business. The highways closed, so the servo and the takeaways are losing two-thirds of their business. But there's something special there. Yeah. You know, there's a, an Indian entrepreneur who's taken over the motel. There's a, a parachute instructor from Queensland who's taken over the hotel. Um, there's two new cafes opening. When you knock on the doors, I connected up a vegetarian chef with the pub owner, um, <laughs> another guy, a gardener, joined the land care. So once you start asking people about what's happening, um, and the innovation. And even yesterday, Craig, I spent half a day with university students from um, the University of Melbourne Innovation Lab. Hmm. You know, of course, they're challenging me because I think I'm pretty good on social media. But, you know, they're saying, Vic, you want to motivate the young, you've got to go onto TikTok. TikTok. Um, and, and so, you know, I just see it every day. And today, you know, with the utility sector, one of the examples I give when I do my full workshop is I talk about um, how much um, optimism needs to be involved with strategy right. so we've and you've took part in this craig you know we yeah. interviewed 400 strategy professionals right 90 percent of them said that op- that strategy is an optimistic process 60 mm. percent said they'd been involved in an optimistic strategy process right. but only 20 percent of their corporations measured optimism and i give the example of a company i'm on the board of. And we were in the middle of a strategy session and we had one of the big four come and do the scenario planning. And every one of the quadrants was negative. Climate change was a threat. Um, Young people being more selfish was a threat. And yet for this company, they've got the country's most advanced waste to energy plant, doubling the profitability on which it was built. They're going to build a second waste to energy plant, taking them to zero carbon by 2024. On the back of that, they're building community gardens. And the thing you will really like, Craig, is that they are now going to produce green hydrogen using wastewater from a recycling plant, using the energy from the waste to energy plant. And, of course, what's the byproduct of producing green hydrogen? It's oxygen. So you put oxygen into a recycling plant, the recycling plant reduces its consumption of energy by 80%. Right Now, you know, that's not Albert Einstein running that corporation. You know, it, it's it's not Dyson running that corporation. They are ordinary, intelligent men and women like you and me, engineers committed to the good, and, and they're producing miracles.
1: But presumably a lot of these engineers and the people involved in these processes, uh, they were doing something else before this came along because a lot of these, like you're talking about green hydrogen, they're new initiatives, right?
2: Yeah, but, but we also incorporate the smartest people around. So one of the challenges this company had was looking at the case for um, digital meters. Mm. And and the commercial price for digital meters makes it unaffordable. It doesn't meet the business case. Mm. So the engineers asked the board for permission to go out and build a low cost digital meter. Mm. One third of the, their achievement was one third of the cost of the commercial offering but, of course, they used the best um, uh, monitoring probe from Switzerland. Mm. You know, so so these guys are not saying we've got to reinvent every part of the component. They're smart enough to know you recruit the best of the best yeah. to advise you on the pathway.
1: Right. One one of the things you've talked about is you've talked to a wide range of people from, uh, you know, bitch diggers to, to uh, politicians and so on, so the full gamut what i'm interested in is how the our, how the future of work is happening and things are evolving the work environments changing what are you noticing about the demands on leadership and how the ideal leader for this uh, emerging work environment is is uh, evolving so what are the skills that are required and 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 what what is being demanded of leaders
2: well my conclusion is you need to be a realistic and infectiously optimistic leader Right. And and that doesn't mean the Ladi Da leader at the front of the stage. <laughs> um, Dominic Barton, you know, the head of McKinsey put it really well to me. He said, Every great leader he's ever met is an infectious optimist. But it's not the big man or woman at the front of the stage. It's the person who can unlock the optimism in the team. And of course, the Center for Optimism Secrets of Success is asking that question: mm. what makes you optimistic? Yes everywhere we say do it once a quarter at the board you know that stupid question that Australian boards ask what's keeping you awake at night
1: yeah
2: we actually think a much better question (laughs) what makes you optimistic and don't restrict it to work I did a session for a government department that was struggling with getting people back to the office Mm. and as we went round the circle um one woman said oh look what makes me optimistic is my garden and my pets Mm. And, of course, she said, look, there's a duck's wound and a couple of canaries and a rabbit. And I said, well, does your rabbit come in the house like ours does? She said, does yours watch television too? Mm. Well, of course, everyone roared with laughter, but everyone knew that she's not motivated by the next policy document or reaching a deadline. Mm. Her motivation comes from home and garden. And, of course, any boss who listens to that says, this woman deserves a hybrid environment. So picking up the the Dominic Barton theme, um, Mm. Bob Arger, you know, who restored the fortunes of Disney, wrote his autobiography last year. And he had the 10 features of of contemporary leadership, 2020 leadership. And you know I wouldn't be quoting him if number one on that list was realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. Now, Mm. I'm playing with the wording at the moment. I did an event for the Irish Development Agency the other day and they asked me to do the workshop on tangible optimism
1: Mm.
2: so it's that notion of being able to reach out and touch but i think i mean if 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 you want good strategy it has to be optimistic yeah um the pessimist is incapable of innovating right so so you need to recruit for that and then the other thing that the companies seem to be obsessed with at the moment is resilience yes well you know jane burns who ran the young and well crc and you know, continues to work in in the space of youth mental health. She said, I don't have the quote in front of me now, but basically what she said to me was, look, you can talk about tenacity, resilience, but when the chips are down, you need the optimistic leaders to carry you through. And Mick Farrell from ResMed, of course, those of you who are listening whose husbands snore, you know that ResMed's the greatest marriage-saving company on earth. Yes. Well, Mick Farrell said to me, to run a medtech company like this, you have to be an optimist. Yes. But it's an optimist based in realism, a good strategy, a good business plan, and a good oh ship plan.
1: Okay, so the, so the leaders need to be optimistic about that. And and I agree with you, pessimistic leaders, they have a, a very low risk tolerance and so on. And uh, strategy and risk are, are very important to have an optimistic overlay. I agree with what you're saying, but in the in the work environment now, just to make it a little bit more concrete for people, we've got this hybrid work environment evolving. We've got some people coping with working at home and some not and and increasingly people talking about mental health, which is which I think also can be optimistic in in that people are talking about it and trying to address it in a real way instead of just it's it's something in the background. What, what sort of leadership, uh, how does the optimistic leader um, uh, lead a team and motivate them in, in those hybrid work environments and in increasing um, uh, mental strain on, on his team?
2: Yeah, one company I've, I've worked with, one of the reflections of the workers is how much more their senior leadership is in touch now. Mm. So being able to do a Zoom video or, or whatever tech you're using, yes, um, that company's seeing the leader, um, the, the board members, the exec members in meetings with the team Mm. and not just going blah, 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 you should all be doing well. It's actually listening to what's going on. Um, and I still remember a very funny story. Someone told me from the mining sector where their boss had to give a speech on leading through, um, walking around at one of the major mining conferences. And he knew nothing about it, but he'd been asked to speak on it. And when they wrote the briefing papers and the draft speech for the three months before the speech, um, he walked around. The company morale went up, 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 because he was asking me about kids and grandkids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what happened after the conference? He stopped walking around. Oh. So, so for me, a big part of this period is talking, listening, right. given that there's no cost to... You know, no time cost in going on to a Zoom conference in terms of getting there, having to drive and the like. Um, Much more touching base and and much more asking questions. And and, and one of the real problems with the mental health discussion in Australia is whenever you ask people about mental health, Mm. they start talking about depression, anxiety, suicide. But if I ask you, Craig, about physical health, Mm. you're going to say running, jogging, good diet, getting out in the sun. And so somehow we have medicalized mental health in this country. Oh. So, so if we look at um, 2000, Australia and New Zealand were the two most optimistic countries in the developed world. Today they're middle of the pack. Yeah. And, and we have doubled the number of people on medication for anxiety and depression <laughs> in Australia. Yeah, so certainly. something is going wrong. And that was yeah, right. you know, why we have the Centre for Optimism is there's a really serious problem of the medicalization of stuff like grief, um, stuff like the normal anxieties of getting through the traffic, yeah. uh, the normal anxieties of marriage. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's a couple of things you just said there. I know Steve is a, is a master at summarising the main points, but um, just before he jumps in, I'll I'll um, I, I think the asking questions, but being really genuinely interested in the answer and listening is um, probably something that's really changed recently and uh, as important for a leader to do, not just ask the question and be on to the next thing, but actually taking the time to listen and engage with people. Well, Gus
2: Nossel, as you know, Craig, is regarded as one of Australia's greatest ever leaders and scientific leaders. Mm. Um, And in some senses, um, he was like Sir John Monash, Mm. but the lovely thing about Gus Nossel is people said that when he came back to Walter and Eliza Hall, even 20 years after he'd retired, he could still look at a scientist or even the receptionist and remember the names of their children. You know how, how's that? And, and you know I, I'm not so good with names. I'd probably say, "How's that boy of yours going?" Yeah. But his skill was even being able to remember the name of that boy.
1: Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Well, one one last question, Steve. I'm sorry, I guess got a burning thing here, and that is um uh what what is the advice you give uh university graduates people who are just starting out on their career after they're leaving us uh leaving uh tertiary
2: um to ask that question what makes you optimistic um, and to ask others what makes you optimistic my favorite tool at the moment um for that is an exercise called my best self Um, and you you sit down for about five minutes and think of yourself in five years time everything Mm. going right Right. And then you spend 10 minutes writing about it, handwriting is best, mm. and then meditate on it. And you do that every, every six months. I had this group of university students, as I said yesterday, in the innovation space. Not one of them had ever been asked or taught about the value of optimism. Right. And, and funnily enough, Craig, when I did that event for Ireland last week, mm. um, you know, people in the audience who were in their 70s, authors and writers and leaders, do you know I was the first person ever to ask every person in that room what makes them optimistic? So for me, the advice to everyone is what, you know, and, of course, let's go back to the definition of optimism because we haven't shared that, mm. you know, and it goes right back to a woman called Mother Julian of Norwich in the 1400s who lived through the Black Plague, who famously said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. You know, things are going to work out in the end. And as John Lennon said, if they haven't worked out, it's not the end. So that wisdom of, you know, seven or 800 years ago still sings to me today. But our kids are not learning it in economics. They're not learning it in their MBAs. And, you know, this year, the American Heart Association declared the factor most protective against mortality in heart disease, cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's and a range of other illnesses Well, you have guessed it, it's the trait of optimism.
0: Well, it's been fascinating, Victor. Uh, I've been sitting here uh, listening to you and uh, riding away trying to bring this together. And um, I'm not sure how good a job I'm going to do, but I'm going to give it a give it a crack Uh, for our listeners. um, We might might sort of wonder whether or not we are optimistic uh, or not. And I guess that uh, you gave us a challenge at the beginning to think about, are we smiling? Are we smiling? And I guess if we're not smiling much, then we're probably not very optimistic and maybe we need to learn to smile more. Um, I, I think one of the things I got out of uh, your talk was that optimism is really a choice that we make. Um, it's, and we've got reasons for this choice and they're good reasons. Uh, it's about what we see and what we choose to see and what we focus on and looking for the positives out of life. And you talked about your family background, and there's a lot of hardship, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering in that story. But your family chose to look at the bright side of things. They they chose to look at what was right about the world and about life rather than what was wrong about it. And, And that that gave a ground for optimism, which which has been part of your story. And indeed, it's part of all of our stories if we choose to look at it that like way. You also talked about seeing the bigger picture. And you mentioned that, you know, it, it's not being unrealistic. It's not sort of imagining that the world is all rosy and everything's perfect. It's recognizing that there are hardships and we all have difficulties in our lives. But at the same time, uh, you talked about It's basis in faith, in spirituality and in family. And these are the big overriding stories that we plug into. And if we can find hope in those stories, then those stories can support us. So what we we see and what we look at is a very important thing. And that's a choice. You talked a bit about uh, connecting people to create opportunities as part of an optimistic, optimistic way of working again, of seeing what people bring to a situation, what resources they bring and how we can connect those people with other people to create more opportunities. Then you talked about optimism and strategy, which I guess would partly come out of uh, connecting people to opportunities. And, uh, and seeing the positives, looking for opportunities, leveraging people's ta- talent, uh, open to innovation. And as you said, you can't be innovative if you're a pessimist. You've got to have the hope that things can be better and that what you do will make a difference. And then you talked about leadership, about being realistic. Again, not buried our head in the sand and having just uh, rose-coloured glasses with everything, but actually um, being realistic about the world, but also infectiously optimistic about it. And, uh, uh, you know, asking that question, what makes you optimistic, is actually challenging people to focus on what is good about their lives. What is good about the situation? What can we What can we extract that is positive about what we're doing? Uh, You talked about having realistic plans and you talked about in this challenging time, but not just in this challenging time, it's a challenge for all times to make connections with people, to be in touch, you know, to, to actually be real, and, and to avoid this kind of medicalizing of a whole lot of things that really don't need to be medicalized. In a lot of ways, they're just normal parts of life. And again, it comes down to what we're going to focus on, well, how we're we going to think about them, how we're we going to look and talk about them. And uh, that's where it comes down to the choices that we make. And so I think in this world of uh, rapid change and uh, things seem to be out of control in some ways, Uh, we can look at the negative side of things and feel pessimistic and deflated, but this world offers a whole range of opportunities and possibilities and if we focus on those things realistically and, uh, and, and look for the good, then we've got grounds for being optimistic. So I I give your, oh, sorry, Steve,
2: can I just give your listeners two, two bits of homework? Mm. So one is the next exec meeting or board meeting you run, put it on the agenda, number one, what makes you optimistic? But don't say optimistic about work. What yeah. makes you optimistic? Optimist, right, yeah. The second one is, is one I'd give people a challenge. Just try it for the next day and they get a refund on this podcast if it doesn't work. <laughs> get rid of the question how are you mm. But in australia if you say g'day how are you or hello yeah. how are you it's rhetoric
1: isn't it rhetoric.
2: well 70 yeah. percent of people say not bad or not too bad right yeah, yeah. and we never ask them what's wrong so yeah. um just try this for one day say what's the best thing happening or what's been the best thing in your day or if it's a friday what's been the best thing in your week and i guarantee to you People will stare at you first because I've never had a greeting like that before. But 80% of people will then come back at you exactly as you said, Steve, with a story of hope and optimism, whether it's in their day or what's happening to them. So two bits of homework, what makes you optimistic at your next board meeting, exec meeting or sales meeting, but don't catch them by surprise, put it on the agenda. And number two, get rid of that question, how are you? And replace it with what's the best thing happening?
1: Victor, that's been awesome. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks. Oh, you two are awesome. I think what you are doing with this podcast, lifting the world, lifting confidence in the future of work, there is nothing more desperately needed for young people and old people and those in between.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for being part of the
2: podcast. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you for asking me.
1: Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Humanised Workforce Future You. Please leave a rating or review for the series on the medium where you source your podcast.
1: Transcripts for today's podcast can be found on craigsatham.com. That's craigsaphi mcom Please subscribe to the series so you don't miss out on new reviews for future guests.